I'm not governed by the fear of what other people say. You've got to open your heart. Well, number one, he's one of the elite offensive players in the game. What is leadership like in today's football world? Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Not Another Philly Sports Talk Show. I'm Mike Sielski from the Philadelphia Inquirer, joined as usual by David Murphy from the Daily News. And we're joined this week, at least the start of the show, by Les Bowen, the intrepid Eagles beat reporter for the Daily News. Say hello to the people, Les. Hello to the people. <laughs> um, we're going to get into the Seahawks and you know where the Eagles are at 5-4 and four and in the playoff race uh, and all that kind of stuff and... Um, you know, everything that you would expect of uh, a week heading into another relatively big Eagles game. Less, what do you think their chances are against the Seahawks? Do they have a chance against the Seahawks? I guess they're six-point underdogs right now. That sounds about right. I, I was very impressed with the Seahawks beating the Patriots in Foxborough. But there are some things you can hang your hat on. I don't think the Seahawks can run very well. Um, the Eagles can shut that down and, and you know, get after – Wilson and Russell Wilson and maybe you know create some havoc there I also don't think the Seahawks defense is quite what it was a few years ago and that maybe they can do some stuff like over the middle and and so forth against that but yeah they're they're serious underdogs and no question it would be the the win of the season if they could do it however you got to remember the Eagles went into Foxborough last year yeah. and won. So who knows what can happen. But it's going to be very, 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 very difficult. How many varies is that? Quite a few. It's interesting that you mentioned the defense of Seattle because. 13. I counted. Okay. There you go. What are you, Rain Man? Uh-oh, fart. Because I actually just wrote a column online for philly.com in which i was essentially looking for something to write about so i wrote a bunch of numbers now Mm -hmm. um and here here are here's one that jumped out at me the the seahawks have allowed an opponent to gain 360 yards of total offense in five straight games for the first time in the Pete carroll era and they've allowed an opponent to score 24 or more points in three straight games for the first time since carroll's first season what have you heard or seen or know or about why that is? Yeah, I haven't looked too deeply into it because we're at the beginning of the week here, but I know they've lost some key people and they haven't really replaced them with Pro Bowl-type people. Uh, I also think they're having a war with the referees right now. Yes. Uh, there was all that stuff back when Seattle won the Super Bowl and then got back the next year about how Seattle's philosophy was to basically hold and obstruct on every play, feeling that referee and and other people weren't going to call everything every play and you could kind of get away with it I think they're not getting away with it as much I think they're being penalized a lot and I think uh, you know they're they're kind of off their game a little bit in that regard Uh, their pass defense I believe is ranked like 16th Mm -hmm. which uh, is not uh, what you're used to from Richard Sherman and Cam Chancellor and and those fellows I guess they miss Byron Maxwell (laughs) the the other thing I'd say is to kind of um, piggyback on what the Eagles did to the Falcons without Marshawn Lynch and that, you know, ground and pound sort of approach. Um, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but I would imagine their defense is spending more time on the field just period mm-hmm. because they don't hold the ball as much, you know, akin to what the Eagles did against Atlanta, you know, hold That's the ball a good 38 point. minutes. Yeah, they have, they have 
great weapons in Graham and Baldwin in, in the passing game, but their running game is terrible. They're they're really not uh, running it at all. Yeah, they're starting to work a, a kid named C.J. Procise into the rotation. Um, I think he had 104. Mm-hmm. What did I – I wrote that number down too. Uh, something he like, had a good game against yeah, the Patriots. 24 There's touches no for like 140-something yards. Yeah. Um, so I think him and Graham will actually be interesting to see how they – because if you think about it, Jim Schwartz is kind of in-your-face defense – it, it matches up really well against these receivers because they're also very smallish. They're like Nelson mm-hmm. Aguilar's, except they can actually you know Catch play. The play. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but in stature, I'm talking about. And if you look at it, first to the the time of possession, um, the last 11 teams to beat Seattle have averaged 30 and a half rushing attempts versus 31.3 pass attempts. And particularly of interest is in 2014 when Peterson and the Chiefs mm-hmm. uh, hosted Seattle. They they called 30 running plays. And 16 passes, and 16 hmm. passes in that game. Wow. And eight of eight of Alex Smith's 11 completions went to tight ends or running, running backs. backs. So, you know, again, there, there's a lot of different variables now than there were back then. But I think that teams, you know, that that is the formula that you've seen teams, um, you know, use to to beat right. the, the Seahawks. And the last team to do it in the regular season in Seattle was was Dallas, and they, you know, grounded and pounded, as, as mm-hmm. they say. Do you think that the Eagles are built? To do that, I mean, what did we, we saw? How about this? What did you make out of Darren Sproles entering the week as the number one running back for the first time ever, and then not getting a single? I don't know if he got one carry against the Falcons. <laughs> he uh, did. He got a well, couple. He did, and he caught a whole bunch of passes. Right, but, but he. I mean, they they had hit, at one point. I counted, and, and Ryan Matthews and Wendell Smallwood had 15 carries before Darren Sproles had a single carry. Uh, so what yeah, did you make wanted, out of that? They wanted to run inside with the bigger guys, and uh, they did it very, very effectively. You know. I had to look at Seattle's front. Uh, Atlanta's front set up well for the Eagles mm-hmm. in retrospect. Kelsey was able to get out in front of of, uh, of the runners and, and pull, you know, and, and really, you know, run around. And sometimes he's not able to do that. If he has right. a big, strong guy in front of him, sometimes he just gets pushed back and, and taken out of his, his uh, path there. But uh, – if they can get that kind of movement on their offense, their offensive line is pretty athletic. And if they can get guys out pulling and, and, and in front of the runners on the, on the edges, they can really do some damage there. What else are you looking at this week? I mean, what's on your notepad? You know, just Russell Wilson. Uh, every time I've seen him against the Eagles, he's done very, very, very well. Um, that's fewer varies. But he uh, – the thing about – his mobility is it's not so much that he runs for you know touchdowns or anything like that but you can have a good pass rush against him and it doesn't matter because he can he can sidestep he can you know move around and then reset and and that's very frustrating I think for a defense you can kind of get him off his spot and it doesn't matter and and usually it matters a lot if you can do that what's interesting about him to me is that his height everybody when he came out and was drafted uh, in the third round, everybody said part of the reason he was drafted so late relative to his natural talent and his intelligence was he's short, Yeah. okay? Yeah. Well, what's interesting about him being short and why I think it's an advantage for him specifically is that because he's short, and you see this with Drew Brees, for instance, a shorter quarterback has to take a deeper drop, okay, to, to, get the, to be able to see the field. You mm-hmm. know, if you're Tom Brady, you take three steps because you're 6'5". If you're Russell Wilson, you probably take five to seven steps more often so that you have a better line of vision. Well, if you can move like Russell Wilson, now you've got a two-pronged advantage. Number one, 
in a in a situation in a play where every step matters and every millisecond matters, it does take a defensive end a bit longer to get to you, even if you're stationary, by taking a five to seven step drop. Now you couple that with the fact that Wilson is mobile and, as you said, can can maneuver out of you know to get into a better throwing position, can roll to his right, can roll to his left, can spin out. All of a sudden, he becomes that much more difficult to corral and to sack and to pressure, um, and, and that you know it's. I think that plays into what you're saying. Like, yeah, it is hard to get him off a spot because it's harder to, A, get to that spot initially, and then it's easier for him to find another one. And frankly, that's been the biggest problem with the Seahawks offense this year is, is, and it was really noticeable several weeks ago, last time I watched the whole whole game of theirs. I'm not sure what he looked like against the Patriots, but that ankle's really been killing him this year, and he has not been able to to do that at all. And, And, you know, I think some quarterbacks might not even be out there with the way that he's he's noticeably favored. That's interesting, yeah. Um, I mean, he's got 60, 60 rushing yards on 31 carries this yeah. year, and he's averaged 40 a game, you know, for for throughout his career. But mm-hmm. it's that it's that spin out that he mm-hmm. does, you yeah. know, where he can he can, you know, even if he takes a short drop, he can then break contain out the back end and and kind of mm-hmm. like start the whole play over again. And he hasn't been able to do that this year. That's what beat the Eagles the last yeah. time they played the Seahawks. It was unbelievable. The Eagles had a really good defensive plan. It was a couple years ago at the 2014. At the yeah. yeah, and uh, he just trashed it. Uh, he, you know, they covered. They they shut down the run, and he just kept running around back there until somebody was open. And uh, you know, it's uh, it's going to be really interesting. Another thing to to look at with the Eagles is. I think they've played better against the good teams they've mm. played. And not just at home, but, you know, I, I, that Dallas game, you know, everybody says now Dallas is the best team in the NFC. Well, the Eagles should have beaten them. Yeah. yeah I mean, uh, you, kick, you decide to kick a field goal or you yes, decide to call a different yes, play on third yes. down. You fake punt. I mean, it was a fake, came down with a fake punt, really. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, it's, there's hope, but it's, it's going into their place is so tough. And especially, you know, hearing your signals and, and a rookie quarterback and you're still dealing with Big V at right tackle who, you know, is getting better but still isn't anywhere close to, uh, you know, both the sacks that the Eagles gave up Sunday were his. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's still kind of a work in progress there. I think it's just going to be, you know, it'll be a real, real long shot if they win this. <laughs> Go ahead, Murph. Well, I was going to ask you because to me this is a fascinating question. Who is the best team in the NFC right now? Like, who, what would your odds be? I, I like Seattle. I really do. I it, maybe that's I, I don't try. I try not to be anti-Dallas prejudiced just because I live in Philadelphia. But again, I'm I'm influenced by that Eagles Cowboys game. I didn't see an unbeatable juggernaut there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't think their defense is that good. They were getting all kinds of praise. Uh, you know, last night, but the Bengals, uh, to me, had a stupid play calling set up. They wouldn't run a screen. They wouldn't run a draw. They just kept dropping Andy Dalton back and getting him killed. Uh, (laughs) You know, I I just – I don't think the Cowboys are unbeatable. I think they're very, very good. I think the running back and the offensive line make them, you know, elite. But the standard for – best team in the conference is pretty high for me it's pretty amazing I mean this is the first time I've actually looked at the standings this week so it's sinking in for the first time but top four records in the NFC Seattle six two and one 
and then or I'm sorry, Dallas eight and one, Seattle six two and one, and then the Giants at six and three, and the Redskins at five three and one. Yeah, just like we all predicted right. right yeah it's it's funny because every you think okay well and Atlanta, then the eagles tied at five and yeah four. you think like atlanta's six and four okay well all right if they host a playoff game maybe you give them an advantage because mm-hmm. they'll be playing in the dome and their offense is going to be better on a fast turf but you get them out of that dome we just saw what happened right you know they got pounded into submission basically by a team that's had moderate success running the ball this year um you know, the Giants, we've seen the Giants and the Redskins, and, you know, I don't know that Kirk Cousins in a playoff situation scares anybody, and who knows what you would get from Eli Manning, um, you know, in a particular playoff year. Uh, you know, I, I'm with you, less on the on the eyeball test with respect to the Cowboys and that game against the Eagles, but at some level, 8-1 and one is 8-1. and one. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. You know, I know. and the only, the, the caveat I would add to that is the same thing I'd say with Atlanta, which is, you know, is AT&T Stadium, is the Jerry Dome, a huge home field advantage in the way that, you know, CenturyLink Field is to the Seahawks. It sure hasn't been yeah. record-wise until this year. I mean, they were str- they were under 500 there since moving there um, until this season. Now, this season, they've beaten everybody everywhere. So, right. you know, but... Uh, Never mind the idea of a rookie quarterback right. stepping into the playoffs and having his team be favored. Right. Know? But this is an obstacle for the Eagles. Obviously, if you're talking about playoff prospects, it's not going to be just how they do down the stretch they're in a division suddenly they're in a division where nobody's bad which is not at all what people anticipated going into the season yeah well we were talking about that on monday before uh doug peterson's press conference a few of us had gathered in the auditorium at the novacare center um before doug came out and we were kicking around that idea of you know what would it take for the eagles to get into the playoffs and one of the things that was pointed out was, and it's it's true, it's kind of one of these things about the NFL that we kind of take for granted now, but it's it's almost underrated to me in a way, which is, in a way, it doesn't matter so much whether you win each week as it does which games you win mm-hmm. because there's so much parity. Teams' records are so tightly grouped, clustered together now, as Murph just said, that if the Eagles moving forward were to beat Cincinnati Baltimore, even the Seahawks to a certain extent, that wouldn't be as important to them as beating the Giants and the Redskins because it would eliminate tiebreakers. It would be wins within the division. Um, yeah, they're 0-3 in the division. Yeah, yeah you know, and that's, and that's, that's huge. Yeah. That is catastrophic. You know, we saw that a couple of years ago in 2014 where they're 10-6, yes. they're and six, but don't make the playoffs because they lose the tiebreaker. You know, not mm-hmm. only are they game behind the Cowboys, but I think they would have lost the tiebreaker to them as well. Um, you know, that stuff matters. Uh, yes. And so what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's feasible to think that this can be a playoff team or is the idea of them reeling off, you know, winning five of their final seven games kind of too wild a concept to contemplate? Well, it's weird that they've played all of their conference games on the road. I mean, all their divisional yeah. games, I should say, on the road so far. Uh, they do have these teams in the link where they haven't lost, so – there's an opportunity there, but it's gonna, they're going to have to reel off with a, a string of wins. I yeah. mean, it's not going to be like win this week, lose a couple, win, win a couple. You know, it, it, they're going to have to really – December is going to have to be all about the Eagles for this to happen, I think. And, you know, if it doesn't happen, it's not the end of the world. I don't think pl- making the playoffs this year is really the, the be-all and end-all, but it certainly would put – a real uh, check mark next to the debut of Carson Wentz and the direction the team is going in going into the offseason. Uh, hello? 
My mic is dead. <laughs> <laughs> Last question before we let you go. Uh, Lane Johnson, when, what's the situation with him? When, when, when will he be back? Because that, that's kind of one of the interesting yeah, really yeah. wrinkles of the season. Yeah, we're midway through that suspension now. We're five games into the 10-game suspension. I want to check in with Lane this week and see what he's up to. I think he's out in Oklahoma. Um, the problem, one of the problems is, I mean, 10 weeks is a huge amount of time. And he's going to be reinstated, and they're very picky about this. It'll be the Monday after that 10th game of the suspension, and that's the week that they play the Giants here on Thursday. Mm. So You won't have a full week to get right, it ready. The, the, the idea that he's going to play that game is probably unrealistic uh, unless he shows up, you know, uh, in, in incredible condition and never and had not having lost a step, you know, in terms of sink or anything like that. Uh, so really, you're looking at the very end of the season and the playoffs, if there are playoffs for the Eagles, before you really see Lane Johnson the way he was playing when he left. Let's keep in mind what the, you know, and the other possible. I mean, think about it. Um, two, uh, two levels. Number one, suppose they're winning and are in contention for the playoffs, you know, do you insert him back in or do you, again, disrupt the continuity of the offensive line? Go ahead. To me, Big V would have to be playing a whole lot better yeah, for that I agree. to become a question. Right now they're winning sort of despite Big V. I mean, right. he's not terrible, but he's not anywhere near the level of Lane Johnson. And, you know, I, I think you'd go back to Lane Johnson very quickly if you had the opportunity right now. But, again, it's only halfway. Big V might improve every week from right. now to you know December whatever, and uh, you know it's 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 going to be real interesting because you have real quickly you have a, a long term question here with Jason Peters on the right. left side. Jason Peters is playing very well. He had his best game of the season this past Sunday against the Falcons. But you know what is your situation next year? Do you get rid of Jason Peters and and gain his cap room and move Lane Johnson to left tackle and play Big V? Or are you going to come out of this suspension thinking, you know, Big V is not really ready for that. Yeah. And Peters is still pretty good, and maybe we better find a way to make this work. That, that's I don't gonna, know. That's going to be a tough call because Peters, while not necessarily highly paid compared to other left tackles in the league, at least right now, becomes the biggest salary cap hit on a roster next season that is already at the limits yes. of the cap. Yes. So um, that's going to be a really tough call. It really is. Yes, it, I just, might, I, I, it might mean bad things for someone else, like Connor Barwin, who who makes yeah. some money. You know, yeah, it's hard I, to say. I just like I would contemplate the idea of like next season Lane Johnson lining up at right tackle or even left tackle, and Alshon Jeffrey outside of him in the same formation. You know, we heard all those rumors about the Eagles trading for him or signing mm -hmm. him in the off season, and he of course just got suspended for four games, so uh, for PEDs. So that would be uh, that'd be an interesting situation to. Yeah, maybe to he see. and Lane could be roommates. Yeah, or could be. Les, thank you so much, Very man. We welcome. appreciate it. Have fun, guys. So, Mike, I think that's that was an interesting point, uh, what Les had to say about Jason Peters and his mention of Connor Barwin, who I just assume yeah. is dead man walking. I kind of did, Except, too. Except, how much money is Vinnie Curry getting paid per snap this, this year? This is incredible. This is incredible. You know, this is... Uh, when they made all those moves in the offseason, and by moves I mean, you know, keeping guys who were already here, who had been drafted here, with the exception of Jenkins, who was young enough that you want to keep him around, smart enough, talented enough, of course. So it seemed to me they were kind of piggybacking on 
um, what teams like the Patriots and the Packers have done over time, which is you draft your own, you keep your own, you develop your own, which is great um, if those guys can play. Um, you know, and now you've got – they did that with Curry. They did it with Lane Johnson. They did it with Zach Ertz. Well, we've seen in Johnson's case, he's become a wild card because he apparently, you know, his, his pharmaceutical choices are suspect from time to time. You've got a situation with Ertz, who I like more than a lot of people seem to like him now. I'm not suggesting he's an all-pro caliber player, but I remember the Chad Lewis days uh, with the Eagles where everybody made fun of Chad Lewis because all he would do would catch every single ball that was thrown to him and fall down. But nine times out of ten, those situations were third and five, and he'd fall down after running a six-yard pattern and catching the ball, which is okay by me. So if Zach Ertz doesn't get a whole ton of yards per catch, you know, yards after the catch, excuse me, I'm okay with that. Like, That to me is the most ridiculous. Of all the things that you could pick to criticize Zach Ertz about, I think that's one of the most Especially a guy ridiculous. who's had concussion issues and injury issues. You know, the guy played with a displaced rib earlier this year. But anyway, be that as it may. And now you've got Vinnie Curry, who, who the Eagles have committed some money to and some years to, and is giving them you know, with the exception of maybe one play Sunday against the Falcons, is really not giving them anything. Um, and and that's, that's the core question I still have about the Eagles moving forward. And again, it's a theme you and I have touched on week after week after week throughout the season and even before the season. It's great to have Carson Wentz. And it's great that everybody, I think, rightly presumes that he's going to be a, a good to terrific quarterback for a long time to come. That really isn't the core question. The core question is, are Howie Roseman and Joe Douglas and the people within that front office going to be able to supply Wentz with enough talent around, you know, on both sides of the ball to make this a Super Bowl contending team? And if you are committing that much money to Vinnie Curry and that much money to Lane Johnson, talented as Lane Johnson might be as their best offensive lineman, makes you wonder. Yeah, it's interesting how much a 3-0 and start can do to, to take the target off your back as a front office. Yeah. You know, it's pretty remarkable because a guy you did not mention who who's in that group of, of contracts that were doled out, albeit a year earlier, was Michael Kendricks. Yes. And Vinnie Curry, Vinnie Curry to me is the, the, the fascinating one. Um, you know... They signed him without him having played hardly at all. Yep. And the notion was this guy's been kind of kept under the thumb of, of Bill Davis and Chip Kelly, and, and now you know he just needed a chance to spread his wings. But this is three defensive coordinators now that have not – he was a 2012 guy, yep. right, Vinny Curry? Yep. This is three defensive coordinators now that cannot find a way to get Michael Kendricks or Vinny Curry – as an every-down player, and Vinnie Curry, 44% of snaps this season. Michael Kendricks, 30%. They remind me of Ben Francisco with the Phillies a few years ago. Ugh. But from this standpoint, the idea being that, well, and you see this in baseball all the time, where a guy is productive in a limited role, and so therefore the executives or the coaches extrapolate, well, if we give him more playing time, he will almost certainly – you know, keep that production at that same level over a full season. He just needs a chance. Well, sometimes it doesn't work that way. Sometimes you really are maximizing what you're, what that guy is going to give you in a limited role. And Vinny Curry, two years ago, I think, um, was very productive as a pass rusher. You know, played 
whatever it was, 32% of snaps or whatever the case may be and had eight sacks and all that. But that was it. They weren't playing him in run situations because they felt he couldn't handle it. Um, well, now he's out there in run situations, and not only can he handle that, he's not getting to the quarterback either. And this is after you've invested, you know, what, a five-year contract into him at significant dollars for a player of his accomplishments. And, and Vinny Curry, you know, this is not picking nits. Vinny Curry, according to OverTheCap.com, at the list I am looking at, will be the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seventh highest paid defensive end in football, eighth highest defensive end, highest paid defensive end in football next year. That's that's insane. That's insane. <laughs> nine million dollars. And the guy who's number 10 is Connor Barwin at nine million dollars. So yeah. it's like so, so I, I just have assumed, you know, all year that Connor Barwin's done because you can't spend that much money on one position. See right. the Giants. uh you know, and expect to, to be able to fill out the rest of your roster. I mean, you know, Brandon Graham then would be 12th. Yep. They have that. So the, they've got right now on the books, they've got cap numbers of 7.5 million for Graham that by far the best had all of them 16, uh, 9 million for Curry and 8.35 for Connor Barwin. I mean, that's a lot of money to type yep. the one position, especially when two of those players, I mean, Car- Connor Barwin is a fine look. You can make do with Connor Barwin, you know, and, mm-hmm. and he'll give you enough, you know, through effort and through through smart. And he'll build your playground. It's, right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I actually saw him when I was picking up this uh, audio. Equi- <laughs> this is great. This is a great story. So Mike Sealski completely sandbagged me last week. No, that, no, 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 no. Long story short, we, we recorded last week. This is week, why so people don't trust the media is because you you tell stories that are false. We Yeah, false. Ex- exactly. Ludicrous. Sad. Sad. <laughs> Sad. Exclamation point. Crooked Mike. Uh, anyway, we, re- we recorded the day after the election uh, when the, it looked as if uh, the entire world had witnessed a, you know, I don't know what it was. But the mushroom cloud yeah, was exactly. only clearing. Yeah, it's only beginning to clear. It was zombie. Th- th- we were zombies walking around. Uh, so, so Ford, my Bob Ford, myself, and Mike Sielski recorded this fine podcast in the uh, the media compound at the Novacare Complex, and Mike had brought the equipment down with him from the office, and our signals got crossed, and the equipment stayed, stayed there, there, and both of us <laughs> left. So, which none of us realized until this morning, right? You know, at which point the the mics had to be back in the studio for the Eagles uh, Bird's Eye View podcast, which I recommend everybody check out. Yes, definitely. Uh, they they had to be back here first thing in the morning. So Dave Murphy was on the Blue Route at seven thirty, pulling into the Novacare Complex at you know whatever eight, picking up the microphones, and then almost hitting Connor Barwin on his walk from the subway. Oh my god! On the, no, I didn't. I didn't almost hit him, but he. Uh, there was nobody. There was nobody on Patterson Ave, and I was making a left, and all of a sudden this like man in black appeared from the gray morning mist walking down the sidewalk it was, it was spitting a little bit i was like who is this jabroni walking down patterson ave and it was connor barwin um so he does actually take septa i can i can hey, tell you that great. that's just that's not great. a marketing gimmick but yeah i mean that's you know when you look at these moves in hindsight that that how he got so much credit and you know this is not just because mike and i spent all offseason kind of tweaking howie's philosophy but you know DeMarco Murray's the leading rusher in the NFL right now, and and turns out quite an accomplished passer. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know Kiko Alonso returned a touchdown for a, a, he, an interception for a touchdown last week. I Again, just read on a his story. Dolphins team that's resurgent. At I, this point. I just read a story the other day that he's the reason their defense is is better this season than it was last season. Michael Kendricks is look when one defensive corner gives up on you, you know whatever when two gives up on you i could maybe see yourself making art but when a third defensive coordinator with a completely different style can't fit you into his nfl defense you're not an nfl player in 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 my mind to me michael kendrick's the only role he can fill on a football team 
uh, sustainably is as an edge rusher, you know, in yeah. a three, four, like a three, four linebacker, uh, you know, so it's, in, it, I don't know. The Curry thing though has been fascinating to me because he must not, he must really not be playing well if he can't supplant more than 49% of Connor Barwin's. Stats. Yeah. That, you know, I mean, Barwin, in fairness, Barwin was a perfect fit for what Bill Davis want, wanted to do. Yeah. With he's just out of position and, and he's out of position now. Um, but and he's actually should, played better. He played yeah, well against the Falcons. He has, but that should create an opportunity for a guy like Vinnie Curry. And it clearly hasn't, um, you know, and in, in some ways, I mean, I've, I've given shorts some grief this season. Um, you know, particularly after the the Redskins game, you could say you underestimated the power of the Schwartz. I, I could say that. Uh, that's a, that's right in your space wheelhouse. Balls, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, ludicrous speed, go. Uh, but by the same token, he's gotten you know he's really rung just about every drop. That's what Nelson Aguilar says every time the ball <laughs> the ball snaps. <laughs> well done. Um, oh sorry. my God, it's coming my way! No. <laughs> um, but he's kind of wrung every drop he could out of a defense where he's decided, and not without reason, Michael Kendricks can't, can't help him. Vinny Curry is not helping him. Um, and he's got really no cornerbacks now. I mean, Nolan Carroll sustains a concussion against the Falcons. Leotis McKelvin is out there on a really bad hamstring. You got Jalen Mills, a seventh-round rookie, trying to cover Julio Jones as, as Murph wrote after that game. Thank God for Rodney McLeod and Malcolm Jenkins if you're the Eagles because those guys are holding that defensive backfield and in turn a lot of that defense together, I think. Well, hold that thought because we're actually going to talk about that in a quick minute. But I just wanted to read one more. This is astounding to me because I'm going to read you, re, I'm going to read you a, a dramatic reading of the highest paid defensive ends on teams' books. Uh, okay. The highest cap numbers for 2017. Four, three defensive ends. Olivier Vernon, Ziggy Ansah, Cameron Jordan, Robert Quinn, Mario Williams, Michael Bennett, Vinny Curry. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, that's like the last probably five years worth of, you know, Pro Bowl rosters. Yeah, that's, I mean, I know you, you, you're paying a guy often for what he's going to be and not what he has been or is, but my goodness, Vinny Curry? Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Anyway. How we better, how we better make this work? He better make this work. Yeah, but it's it's as you said, and, and as we kind of transition into to you know something I know you wanted to talk about, yeah. and I think I would like to talk about as well. Mm-hmm. I'm not pinning this on you. I'm Thanks. just saying you broached it. I did. I'm uh, a broacher. Now I forget what we were. Uh, what oh, where the, I was the going two with sides this. of Leotis McKelvin. Oh yeah, just how how is this defense that good when when you just rattled off, you know, all of their weakness? I mean, really, they're great up front. I think that's. What, I think if you. Have I think that's it. I think. I think they've got the system that fits enough of their players. It fits Brandon Graham. It fits Fletcher Cox. It fits a whole lot better for everyone when Benny Logan is in there, which yeah, was a totally I mean, underplayed aspect of the win Sunday. I thought the fact that Logan was back in there, he was playing well again. You know, it's not a coincidence to me that their defense went a little south during that Redskins game. Uh, particularly after he left that game with the groin injury, and with the exception of the Minnesota game against a really bad offensive line, it took a while for them. They, they, they were struggling. They really were. And then Logan comes back against the Falcons, and they shut down uh, with some help from the running game, the number one offense. I'm glad. I'm glad you mentioned Benny Logan because to me, he's been the difference between this defense has been when Benny Logan's been in there, and when Benny yeah. Logan has not been in there. And I I say that as a guy who was a bit of a Benny Logan skeptic heading into the season. He he's been 
phenomenal as that as that uh that under tackle that that's Mm kind of chiefly responsible for for blowing up running plays and kind of occupying space you know and he's only going to get better i think yeah i think he's still learning how to play as 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 that kind of player but if the eagles do not re-sign benny logan who will be a free agent after this season they will have essentially decided to sign benny curry instead of benny logan because benny logan's cap number is nine million and fletcher cox's cap number is 9.4 million next year um and i gotta think there's a reason why they have not re-signed him yet you know i don't know again like i don't know how much money you can spend on the front four i mean that I don't know either. Look, Maybe. only only it's really tough to talk about salary cap stuff because only the Eagles really know, you know, only the Eagles in the league really know where they stand with all that. And there's so much there's so many ways to to free up money, and they are going to save a lot of money, you know, by having a cost controlled rookie quarter or second year quarterback. But if that money was there, I would have thought that they would sign him. Perhaps they're waiting to release Connor Barwin. I don't know. The the fact is, there's there are ways to spend money. Other than giving it to Vinny Curry, if yeah. he's only going to pay forty-four percent of your snaps. Yeah, and and you would think that they would have looked at that before giving Curry that money. I mean, you, you know, Benny Logan's going to be a free agent after this season. You know that, um, presumably, that he's an important part of your defensive line and had proven more than Vinny Curry had, even in a system that might not have been, you know, suited for him. I mean, that was the concern with Bill Davis's defense was that. Traditionally, in a 3-4, you need a big Hulk and Vince Wilfork kind of nose tackle, and Benny Logan is not that. He's smaller, but he's quick, and he played well in that system, and when he's been healthy this year, he's played really well in the 4-3. So, presumably, they would have taken all that into consideration, but you're right. You know, If you sign Vinny Curry this past offseason, that makes it harder to – maybe they're waiting to see – you know, they're waiting to decide whether to clear Jason Peters off the books and clear Connor Barwin off the books, and then we'll go after Benny, but presumably the, the cost will be higher, too. Yeah, the guy he reminds it's interesting because the guy he reminds me of, style-wise, is also a guy who he could end up reminding us situation-wise, is that, and that's Linval Joseph. Mm-hmm. And maybe you could speak to this a little bit, because I think you were in New York at that time. Were you? Uh, but you were more of a... I was a Jets yeah. guy. Yeah. All right. Anyway, Linval Joseph, who, who's been phenomenal for the Vikings up front against the run and really to me looks looks and plays a lot like Vinny Curry a little bigger um but the Giants let him go after the 2000 and uh I don't know what it was 14 season Mm -hmm. 13 season and he's blossomed into a a great every every down player and they they essentially let him go because they gave you know Jason Pierre Paul money and they, they gave a lot of guys money and they didn't have any left over for Linval Joseph yeah I mean that's it you know it's 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 a thing where it's it's never as simple as saying this guy can play, this guy can't, and because this guy can play, we'll do what we have to do to keep him on their team. The salary cap changes that dynamic. The system you coach changes that dyna- that dynamic. You know, you you've written about this that that's one of the weaknesses of the Eagles organization. I agree with you 100%. What is their identity? What are they looking for in players? Um, it's not enough to say let's go get a great quarterback and figure it out from there. You know, even even the Packers, they have Aaron Rodgers, but they also had this philosophy, like it, dislike it, whatever the case, whatever you think about it, and there's some major critics of it now that they're four and five and, you know, Mike McCarthy looks to be on his way out. Their philosophy was, we're going to keep who we draft. We're not going to spend big in free agency. We're not going to spend barely anything in free agency, um, but we're going to keep who we draft and we're going to develop them 
and we want versatile guys on defense who are all kind of sort of the same size, and we're going to do what we can to, to create conditions where Aaron Rodgers can can thrive. And it's worked fairly well for them for a long time. They won a Super Bowl. They went 15-1 and one, one year. They're generally a you know presumed to be a playoff team every year. They've had a pretty good run. So they've certainly been more consistent in that regard than the Eagles have. There haven't been the peaks and valleys with the Packers that there have been uh, with the Eagles of late, and I wonder if they're gonna if that's something they're able to articulate moving forward. What is this team gonna be, or is it just gonna be Carson Wentz and fifty one guys named Joe every Sunday? Yeah, and I I think that the it's the Curry and the Kendricks contracts that that I mean, when you look at Ertz's deal, they're gonna spend that much. He's like five point two five next right. year against the cap. I mean, Selleck I think is five. You're yeah. gonna, you're gonna spend that on a tight end, yeah. you know, to replace Zach Ertz, and you know, as long as he's better than replacement level that that's pretty much a no-brainer of a contract but I mean you're looking at Michael Kendricks at 6.6 million dollar cap number per over the cap that's like it's ahead of Levante David, Vontez Perfect, you know Koamisi, Anthony Barr yeah. although that's a that's a rookie deal I think still uh you know for 20 percent that you gotta keep in mind his number is 20 25 20 25 to 30 percent of snaps right now yeah you know Vinnie Curry if he does develop into the pass rusher that that people but but I mean we're talking about developing the guys. This is his fourth or fifth year fourth, in the yeah. league. You know I mean it, the fact that he can't he's not an every down defensive end yet and get and is going to be getting paid like not just not just an every down defensive end but a but a, an elite yes you know or near elite defensive end uh, that could be a problem. Yeah, it's absolutely a problem. But we got we got all off season to talk about that. We do buddy. we do we do. One thing we wanted to do this week and uh, th- this may flop. You you know you guys may end up turning off the podcast at this point but we don't we hope you don't or you guy the guy guy, (laughs) um mom yeah (laughs) um rich hoffman is rich hoffman does not he's never listened to you don't think no he retweets it like a all right how about we'll we'll do an experiment every week we'll say rich if you're listening to this uh text the word uh oogie boogie to mike (laughs) and we'll find out so anyway so one of the things we found in the podcast is that when we have people like Les on or people like Keith Pompey, who covers the Sixers for the Inquirer and Philly.com, and uh, Bob Cooney also covers the Sixers, Matt Gelb covers the Phillies, um, that when we discuss how we do our jobs, people seem interested in that. Um, that it's because it goes beyond the presumption of like, oh, like you just write about sports and that's it. You know, I'm sure Murph has heard this question a million times. Like, Ooh, you guys get to talk to the players, you know, that there's this kind of um, uh, misunderstanding, I guess, about what we do and how we do it. So on Sunday, Murph and I had similar assignments, I guess you say, column ideas off of the Eagles Falcons game. Well, let's let's talk through the assignments. So so you guys had what three columnists there? Yes. So anyway, this is like a we should do put put something like a cheat sheet on the website, like yeah. beat writing for dummies. Because I get the same like friends that I've yeah had my entire life. They're like, so what do you actually do? Yeah, like, my do father you, still asks this question yeah. to me once a week. They're like, oh, it's awesome. I'm like, yeah, I don't get to cheer or drink beer. They're like, oh, <laughs> where do you sit? Like in the press box. What's that? Yeah. So anyway, the press box is like this office type thing on the suite level. We sit there with our computers, you know, make stupid jokes, and you know. Eat free food. It's like it's like the audiovisual club at yeah. high school. <laughs> Fast forwarded twenty years. Like think about all the kids that were working for the newspaper, you mm-hmm. know, in college and at your high school. Like they're still working for the newspaper. We're just older and sadder. Yes. 
so anyway, the, we, we each have about five or six. Each of our papers in Quarantelius have about five or, five or six writers on site at the game. And this is one football game. So we all have to find out, you know, what we're going to write and, right. and decide what we're going to write. You know, the beat writers who are the reporters, Jeff McLean and Zach Berman, Les Bowen, um, Paul Domowich. They do a little more, you know, nuts and bolts, nuts and bolts stuff. But there's still a little there's the, you know, Domo and Jeff especially get yeah. into a lot of analysis. Yeah. So essentially we, you know, at halftime, you know, the designated the Steve Nash of each team's yeah. staff or the Sergio Rodriguez of each team's team staff uh, comes. <laughs> that, that would mean allows, that allows, if it was the Sergio Rodriguez. That would mean the guy is telling, you know, what Bob Groats and the Delco Times ought to be doing. Yeah. <laughs> he's, I mean, they're throwing it to the wrong team. It was Marcus Hayes in our, our, yeah. our case. He got scored on 20 times on his way over. To <laughs> Anyway, he comes around and he says, it's like, a you know, come around, bring out your dad. It's like, what are you writing? You know, right. and we'll essentially decide you want to you want to divvy up assignments or topics. So somebody's and, always writing the quarterback just about. Yep. Someone's. And then after that, it's like whatever's relevant. Right. So I end up. I end up usually deferring and, and taking whatever's left over. Mostly because I have no idea what I'm going to write at that point in yeah, time. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way, and and so I, me and Mike and I, for some reason, always get end up with the uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> the same column. Well, one of the things, one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up was because I and I don't know how you f- if the same the experience is the same way for you, but I often get off of an Eagles game, I often get feedback on a column along the lines of why did you write about that? Why didn't you write about this? This was the obvious thing to write about, and this is kind of an explainer as to why. Like, if there were only one columnist or one person at a game, of course you would write about the most obvious thing. You might write about Ryan Matthews and the Eagles running game off of the Falcons game, or you might write about the defense shutting down Matt Ryan. But because there are so many of us, it has to be parsed more thinly. And so this is what ends up happening. And, and as Murph said, we sit and we powwow. So, and, and this, as, as he said, this often happens. He and I seem to get similar topics off of the games, um, whether that's a function of each of us saying, hey, we'll write this, or everybody else deciding they're going to write something else, and, and we take what's quote-unquote left. So we both ended up writing about the secondary in kind of different ways. Um, and in weird way, and Leos McKelvin was kind of the, the subject, but in different kind of ways. And I think it's reflective of, uh, in some ways, how sports writing has kind of changed over time and how different it can be for the people who practice it. So what we, we both basically looked at Leotis McKelvin as a kind of pivotal figure in the game Sunday. He's playing with a bad hamstring. He's not supposed to play in the game, really, unless he's an emergency player. And then Nolan Carroll suffers a concussion late in the first half, and McKelvin has to play because Doug Peterson doesn't want to play any of the younger, with the exception of Jalen Mills, he doesn't want to play C.J. Smith or any other young cornerback because they don't really have any other young cornerback other than C.J. Smith. And he doesn't want to play him, so McKelvin's pressed into duty. So I looked at that and said, okay, McKelvin gets burned badly for a touchdown, the Falcons' only touchdown, the 76-yard uh, throw by Ryan. He makes an interception at the end. He's the only player in the game to defend three passes. No other, no other defensive back in the game defended more than one. Um, and he gets a little bit of redemption with that interception at the end. So I took it as I'm going to write, Leotis McKelvin's hurt. Leotis McKelvin becomes compelling figure because he plays through pain. And, oh, by the way, he's the greatest postgame quote in the history of postgame quotes. Um, he's, he's just great. Um, Murph looked at it and said, Leotis McKelvin's a compelling figure. He's a big figure in this game. He's playing hurt. He gets burned for a touchdown. But the Eagles managed to shut down 
overall, the number one offense in the league, hold them to 15 points and 11 first downs. And thank goodness, as I said earlier in the podcast, for Rodney McLeod and Malcolm Jenkins because the Eagles' safeties are so good that it allows them to get away with injured and or less than stellar cornerbacks. Yeah, and and it as we were discussing this pregame, I guess you would say, pre pre podcast, you know, I told you what essentially is is why it wasn't necessarily uh this was not my uh Right. This wasn't his first choice to do. And But I saw I knew that I knew that Mike was writing Leotis McKelvin. And the problem is when Mike and I write about the same topic, we often wind up writing the same thing. Because yeah. I think we think we think similarly on, yeah. on a lot of things. But, uh, but and often, I was going to, and I went into it. So I went down there, like, intending to write the exact column that you wrote. Right. You know, plus or minus something. But when I realized that you were writing it, I didn't want to have, I didn't want to jockey for people's attention sure, with, with the sure. great Mike Sealski. So I. Stop. Um, but, <laughs> but, but I see now I took a different tack and I thought the columns reflected the differences in our sensibilities in a lot of ways, which is. I wrote McKelvin as more of a human interest, quote unquote, mm-hmm. sort of take like, you know, and, and I got a lot. I got some negative feedback on the column of like, how could you write relatively positively about a guy who is not a very good cornerback and who got burned so badly for a key touchdown early in the fourth quarter to which to which my response was, OK, first of all, the guy's playing with a bad hamstring, like take a fork, stab yourself in the thigh with it and then go try yeah. play f- playing football and get back to me about you know, how you think he performed out there. To me, the more, like, my sensibilities took me to what did it take for this guy to just play? I read your column even a little bit more, like, because you do this very well, which is you saw the whole system in a way. Like, okay, I pretended to. Yeah, Leotis McKelvin is hurt, and that's the first domino to go down, which leads me to, hey, McLeod and Jenkins, the Eagles are really lucky to have them, and they're really good. And here's why this game shows that they're really good uh, and really valuable to the Eagles. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, thank you. I thought your column was great as well. Thanks. I don't think mine was great. It was good. Yours was a good read. Um, I don't know. I I, I think it, I think I, we've talked about this before, but I got a, when I started in the, in the business, I was real into human interest stuff. Mm-hmm. And that, that's just kind of through, I guess, jadedness. <laughs> uh has kind of gone away, and I'm more interested in, in how things work, I think. Yeah. That's the best way to put it, whether it's front offices, rosters, or game plans itself. Uh, you know, that that's kind of more what interests me mm-hmm. at this point in time. And while I was going to, to go the Leotis McKelvin route, in the end, I think I was glad that you ended up, that I tried to pivot a little bit because, mm-hmm. you know, I think there is, the, you got to keep in mind, we're, we're doing all this, you know, with one take essentially, exactly. you know, like yeah. you, you don't get a lot of replays. You don't get, you're doing a million other things at once. You know, you actually can follow the narrative of a game much closer on television yes. than you can at home. I mean, the, at, or, I at, mean, the, game. the at the game, the, yeah. the one big advantage at the game is you can see a lot of the stuff that's going on, on the sidelines. Like you can see Leotis McKelvin kind of jogging and, and right. trying to warm up his hamstring. You can see the whole field, you know, how the, where the safeties are playing and, right. and what they do. Um, you know, and you can, and then there's obviously the, the, you know, you can talk to these talk, guys. talk to the guys and talk to your, your colleagues as well and kind of bounce ideas off. Like I get a lot actually from talking to my colleagues, just like, yeah. like kind of bouncing, you know, arguments off them and like yep. seeing if they can rebut them at all, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. I think it's, I think it's an interesting microcosm, not to get political. I don't want to get political about the election, but I do think it's an interesting microcosm about 
the media in our society as a whole. Like, th- there's this push and pull, I feel like, of what are we supposed to be doing, you know, and um, what are we really supposed to be covering and how are we supposed to be covering it? And I, th- I think the lesson in a way is like there's a little bit for everybody. Like, there's different ways you can do it, you know. Um, one of the things that, that you're really good at, you know, in the days following an Eagles game is – hey, look at this play and let me break it down for you to show why Nelson Aguilar is not a good outside receiver. Um, let me break down this play to show you why Carson Wentz really did make some big mistakes or why what happened on that interception isn't his fault. Um, you know, that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is the way that I admittedly tend to look at it, which is like, these guys are people. Like, I don't, mm-hmm. and and I don't, like the Sam Bradford um, situation back when he was still with the Eagles, I, you know, one prism to look at that, and I think um, to the fault of to to a certain extent of those people who always look at things this way was, how does this help or hurt the Eagles? You know, why doesn't Sam Bradford want to play for this team? He's here, he's under contract, he should be here because these are the Eagles, and that would be the best thing for the Eagles. It wouldn't create any disruption. But it, you know, my viewpoint is I'm supposed to be we're supposed to be a independent. And then my tendency is to look at this from like the human aspect, which is it's totally human for somebody who would not who wants a different job and is not happy in his job to go find try to find another job and think he can be better and do better someplace else. So the criticism that Sam Bradford got never made all that much sense to me because um, he was just a guy who wanted to improve his job situation. Uh, and but my point is that there's room for all of those perspectives and. The idea of like th- there's one way to do it, to me, is gone. Like you need fairness, you need integrity, and you need accuracy. But how you present that can come in a myriad of ways. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I think that one of my big frustrations uh, with the election this year and the coverage of the election, and I, I had been saying this throughout. This is not. This is not. Uh, you know, hindsight. No. That's, I and think I'll that's vouch. What, I'll vouch for what you're going to say. This is true. We've discussed this off the off the air a lot. Yeah, like I, I, uh, you know, one of the things that has frustrated me about, and again, this is not like one of one of the things that frustrates me about society in general today is you can't talk about stuff because like people, people say you're on one side. Or right. The other. Exactly. Like you almost have to like put full dis- like like list your disclosure yeah. before you you even say anything. And I and I say this is a completely like again trying to diagnose what went wrong you know or what and we mean what went wrong from a from a coverage standpoint right exactly yeah like I I, I'm not saying this you know I was actually I've not defended I've tried to explain Trump to people right right you know more than I have you know jumped on the uh you know the bandwagon one thing that's bothered me is is just this like the pearl clutching and hand-wringing you know from a media that clearly was shell-shocked yeah, to see what they saw, and it just to me the sh- the shell shock has bothered me more than anything because it shows how out of touch they were throughout the whole time because they shouldn't sh- they should not have shocked them right. Um, and I think the one thing that frustrated me more than anything throughout the election with regards to the coverage was it was a it was covered as a clash between two personalities rather than two policy philo- political philosophies. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. this turned into like. Donald Trump, the jerk versus Hillary Clinton versus crooked Hillary. You know, I mean, and even like CNN, like CNN to me is the perfect example. I mean, none of the other networks are off the hook either. But CNN, like they were when they were doing their early results on election night, they were playing like 
the old high school football highlight music that yep. like uh you know channel 16 wnep in the poconos would play like before <laughs> wyoming valley west and pocono mountain you know it was like din, 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 din. and it's like wolf blitzer's voice is doing a voiceover over this like canned like uh you know yeah. all you were missing were carrie underwood and yeah it's you know here you know, we are on tuesday and like, night you, when you, you know? looked at like the commercials for the debates it was like like literally donald trump's head at times looked like one of those monday night football helmets that yes. used to crash into each other like yep. donald trump Hillary Clinton, who will it be? Yeah. You know, it's like, dude, we're talking about the president of the United States yeah. here, yeah. you know, and, and I don't know where that comes from. I think a lot of it, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of fear. I, well, first of all, the media has always been a monopoly up until the last five or 10 years. So we've only ever done it one way, right. really. Right. Um, but like, I think that like, look, clearly some of that stuff sells ratings, you know, I mean, and Wolf, I th- and Wolf. I and I think that's more important now than ever. You could always make the argument for ratings make make money, but now when the success of your media operation is, you know, for instance, Philly.com is measured in number of clicks mm-hmm. as opposed to what is your subscriber base and and are you bringing enough advertising dollars from classified ads and and you know apartment and house listings and and you know, I mean th- that stuff doesn't exist anymore. So we make our money through clicks and. TV makes its money through the ratings and it becomes much more important, however you want to define important, um, to just get eyeballs and you do whatever you think is necessary to get eyeballs. Again, not excusing it, explaining it. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 a variety of factors involved, but like the click phenomenon, like to put it, I call it like the, uh, the porno conundrum. Mm-hmm. And I've said this since my days on the baseball beat when I would get really frustrated with you know, some of the low hanging fruit you have to cover as a beat writer, yeah. you know, like Jimmy Rollins calls people front runners. Like, mm-hmm. like who cares? You yeah. know, like grow up. Let's write it. Like I want to write about why Roy Halliday's sinker does whatever, right. you know? Um, but like I, I, so I would say to my editors, like, look, man, like how are we, like, how are we measuring success? Right. Because all we ever hear about is numbers because that's really the only way to quantify what we have, you know, in the face of declining subscription mm-hmm. and, and declining, you know, advertising revenue. But I said, like, if, 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 if our mission is to maximize clicks, why don't we just fire everybody and start running pornos? You know, like, cause seriously, like that's, I mean, that's kind of the conundrum when you follow it logically through to it, to the end that, that everyone in the media is kind of dealing with, which is, yeah, we can say that we have a mission beyond clicks, but if the only thing we judge our, you know, success, success by, by is a number, you know, that's not, you know, that's kind of that like compute. that's the yeah, tension of the like opposites. That's kind of the whole media is kind of dealing with it at this point. My my problem with the mainstream, the lamestream media, as <laughs> easy, our as our future easy uh, governor as our future secretary of education will <laughs> will uh, w- actually would put the it. secretary of education maybe Michelle Ree, which okay. wouldn't be a bad thing. All right, well good. Um, as anyway, uh, as she would put it, the lamestream media, the CNNs, the MSNBCs, like it's it's totally personality driven. Yeah, and you know there's this narrative that like. And it's just how we think as media is we think in terms of narratives. Like, how can we make this an inter- the most interesting story, you know, it can be? Because I think that's like, in a way, that's kind of what you and I both did, which was like, what is the most interesting thing about this story? Right. You thought it was Leotis McKelvin, you know, playing through playing pain. through pain and, and, you know, being the hero, being the goat and then kind of, you know, at least. And I'm, we mean goat by like the, the vi- not gr- you know, yeah. yeah, not greatest of all time. But anyway, and I thought, and I was like, well, what's the second most interesting thing about the story? I can say, oh, it just kind of shows how the safeties are. You know, the problem is what makes something interesting isn't necessarily what makes it 
you know, is, is the most important thing important. for the public good. And, yeah. and like to me with the election, the important thing would be like, hey, you know, all this stuff we're reading about what Trump is going to, you know, how, how much how bad Trump's going to be, you know, policy wise and organizational wise as a president that we've read since he got elected. That would have been nice to read before he got elected. So people could say, oh, you know, as much as I dislike Hillary Clinton or the system or whatever I'm ra- railing against, the fact is we're putting a guy in charge who's never really organized right. anything in his entire even, life. Even more to that point, we just we in the Inquirer and Daily News just did a story in which in which we sent a reporter and a very good one, Bill Bender, um, into uh, basically rural Pennsylvania to talk to Trump voters and to find out why Trump won Pennsylvania. Well. That's the kind of story, if we're going to do it, I would argue that we should have done before the election Mm -hmm. because it sets up and it explains what might happen, (laughs) number one. And number two, it would have been a more accurate portrayal of what was actually happening within the voting populace. Um, You know, it's become a cliche in the last week, but it's true that there was a disconnect between what people would see on the three major networks what they would see on CNN, Fox, MSNBC, what they were reading certainly in places like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post compared to what was actually happening out there and what I would imagine some smaller media outlets in the middle of the country might have been reporting but that wasn't gaining any traction outside of the middle of the country. See, it's interesting because... I would actually hold that tack as being at least subtly influenced by the narrative that that people have been pushing, or at least the limited narrative that people pushed about Trump voters prior to the election. To me, if you want to find out why Trump, and again, I, you know, it, it's a relevant story. Don't get me wrong. Right. And Bill Bender will do a hell of a job with it, but. There's those people in this in our city, and those those are the people yeah. that I think that that we haven't heard anything about the children of white flight that essentially voted for Trump. And if you look at mm-hmm. a very polarized map of the city, when you when you see that the far northeast yes was red, South Philly was red, and then everything in between everything was blue. in the in between was blue. And to me, that's that's the more interesting story because. It doesn't necessarily fit with the cliches of Trump voters. A lot of these, and a lot, I think I kind of been in, attuned to this because a lot of them are my friends. Mm. Um, you know, just a straw poll of Dave Murphy's circle. Mm-hmm. If you're from Northeast Philly, you're more than likely voting for Trump mm-hmm. than for Hillary. Um, you're or put it this way: you're more than likely voting for Trump than anything. You're almost definitely not voting for Hillary. It's just a question of whether you voted third party right. or. Um, or Trump didn't vote at all right you know yeah and and when you look at that's what flies in the face of because these are these are people that are educated um you know that are white collar professionals at this point in time um most of them are real you know sales real estate stuff like that but, you know I went to LaSalle like I bet you LaSalle like if you if you pulled uh you know LaSalle alumni you know or Philly Catholic School alumni you know that's what we re- haven't necessarily read and to me, that's um, look. The Rust Belt is gone. Yeah. You know, like you're not getting them back uh, if you if you continue mm-hmm. the party coalition as it is 
the right Democratic now, Party coalition, right? The Democratic right. Party coalition as, as it is right now. You know, and maybe maybe the stereotypes are more correct about you know Middle America, uh, though I would I would argue that they're not nearly as correct as people have, I would, have hammered I would us too. with, right? But a lot of these people voted for Obama. You know, these people are more. Look, I read a quote from somebody about it was somebody in the Democratic Party. There's a story today about kind of how on Politico about how they're doing some soul searching and there were a bunch of conference calls at the White mm-hmm. House, yada, yada, yada. And I think it was somebody from Rhode Island. I don't know if it was the governor or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. We're a party official, but said, look, when I talk to people and I ask them, what can we do for you? The first, second and third thing they say is I want a job. I want my wages to go up and I want to know that my children will have a job. Mm-hmm. I want to feel that's all people care about. Yeah. You know, everything else is just kind of noise yeah. or, ha- or like part of that concentric circle that overlaps. Like, yeah. like I always compared it to a rectangle. You know, what is it? A rectangle is a squ- or a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square. Well, no, a, a, a quadrilateral or something like that. Oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah. One yeah, of those. Something things. like that. Yeah. Um, I, know, I know what you mean. I know what you like, mean. Like if you're a racist, you're voting for Trump. But that doesn't mean because you vote for Trump, you're, you're a racist, racist. You know, exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah, and, and to bring this back to sports and kind of close this, um, the day after the election, and, and w- I went into the Novacare complex, um, you know, Eagles practice, going to cover that, and uh, Zach Berman, our coworker, made what I thought was a great point. He, uh, and this gets back to the media, na- the question of narratives and reporting, and as you said, being open-minded enough to be, and to be able to honestly and forthrightly kind of discuss what is going on without having it be colored by or, or, or without the fear of being accused of thinking one way or another. Zach came out and pointed out the front page of the Inquirer were two stories, one about Trump winning the election and the other about Pat Toomey winning re-election in the Pennsylvania Senate. And in both stories, within the first three graphs, was a line, you know, in a result that confounded media experts and pundits, comma, Trump slash Toomey went on to a victory. And Zach's point was, if, if we were writing about an Eagles game or a football game in which there was a major upset, let's say the Cleveland mm-hmm. Browns beat the New England Patriots, nobody covering that game would write, in a result that confounded sports writers and broadcasters, comma, the Browns beat the Patriots. Like, you guys were wrong. Like, what made you think that you, as journalists and reporters and pundits, were the baseline for conventional wisdom, real, actual, what's going on here in the country? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And it's like, it, I, I, I don't know. There's, there's, there's like, we need to have, like, no, no, Noam Chomsky on, Chomsky on here to talk about this stuff because a lot of it's, like, like the reality of public narrative versus yeah. like when you look at like the slave people would be like oh well slavery you know you know the whole country was was inf- it was just how things were back then it was like no there are a lot of abolitionists yeah. out there like <laughs> that's right self-immolating themselves they just happen to be right but in the minority you <laughs> right. know uh, and it's like it's almost like that's what a, a, a clause like a parenthetical like that introducing a story that's what it does it almost says well you know we all thought this was it's like well no, no you didn't no you, you didn't know, I mean, you absolutely did not um <laughs> But yeah, I, I, you know, we could, we could, we could do this for hours, and you know, we apo- I, at some level, I apologize for nah. bringing the election into it. They but can turn it. There's an off button. There's an off button. So it's right next to the unfollow button. <laughs> um, next week we'll deal with the election of 1860, 
and uh, religion. What, yeah, and what Lincoln's rise uh, meant for the Union and, and the future uh, of the Catholic Church. Exactly. So uh, thanks for listening. Thank you too. I appreciate you.